and welcome back to Cine, you know. Hey, this is the real welcome this back. This is our actual This one. is the actual hey, welcome we're back. back. So we, um, we don't have all of us, but we have some of us. We've got two of us. It's Sean Jordan. Hey. And my name's Todd Wofford. And this is my first official episode back after the birth of our twins in November. This is the return from the hiatus. This Thanks. is the breaking the seal. This is the return of the Jedi. Yeah. Um and just a little bit of an update. So Sean and I are recording three episodes tonight. And you this, say an update? This is a little an update. <laughs> this is a little an update. This is the third of three episodes we recorded tonight. So we're three glasses of wine in. Three generous glasses. Of three wine. generous glasses. Um, we're recording backwards, and so this will be the first episode that you hear, but the last episode that we record. So we're a little bit activated right now, um, especially because I haven't drank a whole lot in a good long while. Why not? What have you been doing? I mean, just taking care of two two newborns. So there's that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this will be the first episode of our Best Picture series. We're doing The Godfather. Um, it is actually the day that the Best Picture nominations for 2023 mm-hmm. come out. Yep. Uh, so we are first, first time seeing that list today, which mm-hmm. feels appropriate. It does. And no real surprises. No, not, not really. Um, I've missed about half of them just because I haven't been out of my house. In well, a while. half of them just came out, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make every effort to see those and get those reviewed and up on the website soon. What's that website? Uh, ToddWaffenMovies.com. Get back there and check it out. And then, yeah, CinemaVino.net. Uh, our website um, has a new look and feel. Had somebody redesign that while I was away taking care of babies. Is it updated? It is updated. I check it check out. Check it out. Uh, lots of opportunities on there to, to subscribe and get leave comments and just catch up with us. Um, but yeah, we are recording uh, back to forwards, so our episodes are out of order. Uh, at least they well, won't be for us. They, they are for us. They won't be for you guys. For you, so it's perfect. If we seem a little bit hammered, that's why <laughs> we're 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 going backwards because we wanted good movies only drunker. <laughs> exactly. We wanted to start with the rosé and do the English Patient first, which will be in two weeks for you guys. And so we got to drink that one first, and then you move on to the red first, and work our way from kill your palate. Yes, so we do the lighter wines and work our way backwards to the bigger wines. So now we're up to the Tuscan wines for The Godfather, which makes sense. This is the biggest movie that we're going to talk about in this stretch. This is the movie that I feel like any time Todd talks about a ten, he always compares it to The Godfather. I mean, this always is the fucking Godfather. <laughs> this is a, it's funny because my wife was showing our little boy. For his birthday weekend, he's obsessed with tornadoes for some reason. Like he's obsessed with any kind of weather phenomenon. He's he, he wants to be a Oklahoma, storm chaser. Yeah, so, you know. And he, yeah, he he's asked me, "Do we live in Tornado Alley?" You know, he he's hell for yeah, it. brother. <laughs> we right in the middle of it. Um, but my wife showed him The Wizard of Oz, and he loved that. And it's funny. So, and then we watched The Godfather. And I tell my wife, it's like we we're watching two of the Mount Rushmore movies for cinema. In one weekend, The Wizard of Oz and The Godfather. It's less as best us in this one. Yes. Well, maybe. M- maybe. <laughs> TBD. Is Wizard of Oz, like, is that a 10 for you? I mean, for, for cinematic reasons, yes. I mean, just for history reasons. Right. I mean, this, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a Mount Rushmore movie. It's like, it, it is, I don't like the word iconic because it gets overused by people who don't properly understand it, but it's like, Wizard of Oz is an iconic movie. Like, you could show that to anybody right now on a TV screen. They know it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they know instantly what movie it is. And they, they can name lines from the movie, characters from the movie. Yeah. They can tell you the plot of the movie. I mean, it is. Same with Bloodsport. Exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, JCVD. Is that Forrest Whitaker in Bloodsport? <laughs> yeah. It's like, hell yeah. Kumite. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, Wizard of Oz is iconic. That, I mean, I mean, I know we were talking about that. She asked me like, what are your Mount Rushmore movies that you put on for, for cinema? It's like, I put Godfather. Um, I put Wizard of Oz. I put Snow White, Citizen Kane. Those would be the four movies I put as Mount Rushmore. Just Snow White, just cause it's the first animated feature ever yeah. made. It's the first Disney movie ever made. Um, Citizen Kane is the, to me, the first truly modern movie ever made. The first, it's, it's the birth of modern cinema. Yeah. So, and like what we said, what we will say later about Italian wines, if they have, if there was a wine university, Italian wines would be a whole separate discipline. Yeah, so let's talk about the wine. What are we drinking? Uh, well, I'll finish this. Um, Citizen Kane would be, it is a film school. Citizen Kane is an entire course, a semester. They're in, 
I, I watched Citizen Kane in my one film studies class. Yeah. It's like there, there's literally Roger Ebert used to host a film festival. They would they would break down every single shot of Citizen Kane. So, and again, you have to be a film nerd because that might be a humdinger otherwise. Freaking nerd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, talk about the wines. So, uh, for this one, we are doing a Tuscan wine because obviously a, a significant portion of this movie takes place in Italy. And obviously, all the main characters, at least all the Corleone family, is Italian. Sicilian. Sicilian. Sicilian wines are going to be a little bit tough to find specifically in Oklahoma, where we are. You'll have to kind of look around. So I went with a more general Tuscan wine. Sure. Uh, just because that's going to be your. Sicily's more known for its food anyway than its wine. It is. In this movie, they drink wine out of a jug. They do. Big old, like, Carlo Rossi jug. C. C. And vino. So. <laughs> um, C. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, Sicilian wines, I mean, uh, other parts of the world, they might not be as difficult to find, but here, Sicilian wines are a little tough. So I went with this uh, Toscana, and honestly, you could have done this for the English patient, too, because they filmed a good part of that. In Tuscany? In Tuscany. Wait, did they film it in Tuscany? Yes. Shit, we should have talked about that in, the, in that podcast. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we haven't, for you guys out there, you haven't gotten there yet. The English patient, they filmed a good portion of that in Tuscany. Interesting. Now, onward. Um, this is the Cantolatoro um, from Avignonese. So the Avignonese is the winery. Cantolatoro is their is their entry level wine. This is about twenty dollar bottle of wine. This is their kind of everyday offering. Now compared to the Spanish red that we are going to drink in the next podcast, this yeah. one's a little bit more jammy. Mm-hmm. A little got a little bit of stains the corners of your mouth, kind of you know. A little bigger, a little riper. Yeah. A little more body to it. A little more body, a little more fruit forward, a little more. Mm-hmm. This one, this one has a little more boldness to it. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is the the bigger, what they call old world style. Uh, old world is tannic. It's big. It's meant to have some age to it. You can age it for a while. Yeah. Um, it's just a. It just has more oomph to it. Yeah. And that, that's that's the old world. So what year is this? This is 2019. So this one is still pretty fresh. This one could definitely sit on the shelf for a while. And that's a good, like, four years. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, for an entry-level wine, yeah. this could definitely keep aging, yeah. Mm-hmm. For, uh, I'd say five years. You could easily put this away for five more years. Um, so this is 50% Sangiovese, 20%, 24% Cab, 24% Merlot, and then it has hints of Syrah and Caniolo. Caniolo? Caniolo. Yeah, tough to say after several glasses of wine. Can you Olo? <laughs> Can't you Olo? I can Yolo. <laughs> Sangiovese is the most common and most famous grape from Italy. It's the primary component in Tuscan and Super Tuscan wines. It's also the main grape in Chianti. Uh, Tuscany is in the west northwest portion of Italy and is one of the most famous wine growing regions in Italy and one of the most famous wine growing regions in the world. Um, the pictures look beautiful. I've never been there. My wife's been there. Um, looks lovely. Looks lovely. We're going to, like we've said, pl- we're going to plan our 10-year anniversary trip there, like we will say later in our podcast. You guys will find out later that Todd's been planning a, a, a an Italy trip in a couple for, of years. For our 10-year wedding anniversary in two years. Uh, you could pair this wine with pasta, with lamb, with steak. I think this would go well with a meaty pizza. With a very meaty slice of pizza. Feels a little racist. <laughs> um, you get you a four meat pizza, you get you some of this. So, one thing I'll say, and I'm just going to throw on my snob hat, I just got back from Italy a few months back, yeah. right? So, I was in the northern part of Italy, and one thing they said was, like, hey, this part of Italy, like, you think of, you know, Italian food, you think of pastas, you think of pizza. That is straight up not our part of Italy. Yeah. Northern Italy is really focused on, like, risottos. Cattle, meat, beef. Um, so, like parts of Milan that are really known for like um, fashion, right? It's the leather. I thought you were going to say fascism, but <laughs> <laughs> also fascism. <laughs> that is the origin of fascism. Damn. You know, parts of parts of Milan known for fascism. What kind of red wine goes with fascism? <laughs> <laughs> you know what this wine tastes like? Mussolini. It's like some wines are some parts of Italy are focused on like you know pasta. Some other parts of Italy are focused on fascism. <laughs> Listen. Like, all right. Listen. 
It's not that kind of podcast. I could go for a while. <laughs> this one goes well with Il Duce. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, no. So when when you think of like the wines that go or come from the northern part of Italy, think of them pairing with like a risotto over a pasta or a steak over like um, you know a veal. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit heavier. It's a little bit more rich. Yeah. Than what you think of from like southern Italy. Yeah. Uh, I I think that it, this would go well with either in this situation. Big beef area mm-hmm. there. Uh, we had we had really good aged steaks. Yeah. Man, I mean I and I hear like great things about the food. Obviously you said the coffee. I don't drink coffee. But espresso. People rave about the coffee. You gotta get the espresso. Yeah. Which my wife loves espresso. So there you go. Yeah. And I think that's I think going to Italy is what got her hooked on it in the first place. Yeah. So it, it ruined me for coffee for the rest of the trip for sure. And I think it ruined. It's like she fell in love with Amaroni while we, while we were over, while they were over there. Yeah. And you know Amaroni is a very expensive red wine. Probably I mean entry level is forty bucks a bottle. And then you know we go to Oregon for her birthday a few years ago. I'm, I'm going to tell on her. I'm going to tattle on her. But it's like you know we go to for her birthday and we go to a nice restaurant. And she finds Chateauneuf de Pop, which entry level is probably eighty, hundred. It's like, and that's now her favorite grape. So it's like, you found something more expensive than Amarone. That's congratulations. <laughs> it's like you traded out, you know, three dollar three dollar bill signs for four dollar bill signs. Yeah. You know, it's like the most expensive wine region in the world. That's why I really like Beaujolais. Beaujolais is just like delicious, crisp, and cheap. It's the definitive table wine. Yeah, it's the definitive red table wine. It's great. And they call it picnic wine. You can literally sit there in the afternoon and drink it. That's like we'll... a $12 bottle. Easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a good shot to nip the pop will run you 100 bucks. So, And also, interestingly enough, like uh, English Patient, the area specifically where that is is known for Montalcino. And it's like Montalcino is also, like you'll see that consistently rated as one of the highest rated wines in the world. It, it, but I looked it up. It's like it's a little bit above our pay scale for this podcast have a Montalcino. It's like, you know, entry levels for that start about 70, 80 bucks. They can go 100, 200, $500. Am, am I not worth that to you, Todd? <laughs> Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? <laughs> Again, we're just, we're just hopping around. In time. You'll get that joke in the future podcast. <laughs> yeah. You don't get that yet, but you will. And you might laugh, but you might not. You won't. Probably not. No. Um, so, uh, a little bit about The Godfather. Um, and again, this this is, I mean, one of the most iconic movies we've covered. I say this probably ranks alongside Casablanca for. I was going to say, have we covered anything more iconic than Casablanca? Lawrence of Arabia, yeah, I feel like is up there. Yeah, but I would say this one might trump both of those. I agree. So. I think this is probably the biggest movie we've we've covered. Yep. Jaws, uh, maybe Jaws is up there. I think this beats Jaws. Jaws would be, I think, in my. Um, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore movies. Yeah. And that shark would look good up there. Yeah, it would. <laughs> so this was released March 24th, 1972. This grossed $250 million worldwide against a $6 million budget. $6 million? Uh, for a time, this was the highest grossing film at the box office ever made. Wow. Until it was eclipsed by... Jaws? Jaws. Fuck yeah. Which was then eclipsed by... Star Wars. Star Wars. Yes. Which was it then eclipsed by... I can't keep doing this. Uh, E.T. E.T. Fuck yes! Which was then eclipsed by... Shit. Uh, uh, Star Wars? No, Indiana Jones. Uh, Keep going forward in time. E.T. was what year? 82. 82. I'll give you a hint. Welcome to... Jurassic Park. There you go. Uh. Um, This won Academy Awards for Best Picture... Best actor, Marlon Brando, which he refused, famously. Yeah. And he sent a Native American woman named Sasheen Littlefeather to accept the award. Yep. In which she almost got slapped by... John Wayne. John Wayne, who was pretty drunk. Yeah. But still a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, One of his darker moments. Yeah, there's a lot of those darker moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, that's, that's... And then... This year, Lily Gladstone is the first Native American actress to be nominated for an Oscar. And I think she's going to win. I hope so. I do too. Um, 
But yeah, we can talk about John Wayne's dark side. That's a whole other podcast, but yeah, I have strong opinions about that too. Um, it's one adapted screenplay for uh, Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo, um, who wrote the novel. Now, it, I did mention when you got here, I was surprised you didn't bring a Sofia Coppola wine. Mm-hmm. She has a winery, right? You, well, uh, Francis Coppola has the winery, but he named it after her. Okay. So. Really good rosé. Mm-hmm. I actually really like her rosé. And his director's cut, uh, Cabernet, is really good. Um, but yeah, they won the, the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. This did not win Best Director. Uh, that went to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. Al Pacino did not win Best Supporting Actor. Uh, he lost to Joel, Cap- Joel Gray. How was Marlon Brando the lead actor of this? And I think Al Pacino that, was supporting actor. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's Does like, not make sense to me. So I think some of that has to do with Brando's stature. I explained this to my wife. That the name recognition? By the time this came out, Brando was already an, an icon. He was a legend in filmmaking. Uh, generally considered to be the best actor in the world for cinema. He was also Jor-El. He was. Just like another actor. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Yeah, we got two Jor-Els. We got two Jor-Els. Um, this was his second Academy Award that he won. I don't know how many he was nominated I wish Travis for. was here for those Jor-El references. He would have loved that. <laughs> he would enjoy that. He would have loved that. Mm. Um, this was his second nomination? Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Nicholson fam- famously said that when Brando dies, we all move up a notch as actors. He was... Brando couldn't remember his fucking lines. But it's like... He was somebody who was so goddamn famous that he did not care that he didn't know his lines. And people were so grateful to have him on the set. Literally, the guy who played Luca Brasi in this movie was so flustered when he had to have a scene with Brando that he fucked up all of his lines. <laughs> Is and that they, why they did the whole thing? They wrote it with, into the movie. That's amazing. I didn't know that. He was so intimidated to be in a scene with Marlon Brando. Godfather, I'm here today. Thank you for having me <laughs> on this, your daughter's wedding day. Yeah. That's awesome. And so that's how big of a star he was at this point. He was already a legend when this came out. Um, so, yeah, this was his second Michael, one. that man is talking to himself. <laughs> so many great scenes. Um, but yeah, so that's why he's the main actor, is because he was so big. It's almost like a stature thing. So let me ask this. He's on all the posters. This, this has kind of become a bit of a, a, a hot topic right now is um, – Ryan Gosling got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor, keep in mind, not Best Actor. Mm-hmm. And um, Margot Robbie didn't get nominated at all for Best Actress. Yeah. What, how do they determine Best Supporting versus Actor versus I think it's a crapshoot. Like, is there a percentage basis? Is there, like, some sort of, like... Do the movies submit for themselves, like, what title or what titular character would be... Um, what roles? I, I know it works that way for the Emmys, where it's like literally you'll have somebody like Lisa Kudrow one year get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and then the next year get nominated for Best Actress. It's the exact same part. Really? Yeah. So I don't think there's any firm criteria for what that. What movie was Lisa Kudrow in? I mean, for Friends, for Emmys. Oh, oh, for Emmys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think there's any firm. I was like, like Romeo and Michelle's? Yeah. <laughs> But you know, for this movie, it's like nominated for anything. Al Pacino is clearly like he's a co-lead because this, you know, Godfather is two plots. It's two storylines. Yeah, it's the decline of Don Vito and the rise of of Don Michael. Yeah. So, uh, but we'll get to that. So, uh, incidentally, Cabaret swept the Academy Awards. The Godfather did not win. Uh, Joel Gray won for Best Supporting Actor. He beat beat out Al Pacino. Uh, James Caan, who played Sonny, and Robert Duvall, who played Tom Hagen. Um, Wait, I thought I thought Robert Duvall won an award for this one. Mm-mm. No, he did not win until he was nominated. Though he was nominated for best supporting. Mm-hmm. So this had like three best supporting noms mm-hmm. for one movie, mm-hmm. and none of them won. None of them won. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. So I will say. So I've been playing. Um, there's an online like. Are you familiar with the three by three grids games? Maybe. So I, I think I sent it in the group chat a few months ago, but it's like um, 
the the premise of it is it'll do three categories on the left, three categories up top, and it's like a three by three grid, mm-hmm. and you have to pick a movie that fits mm. one, each each of each of the categories. Yeah. Um, today's was Robert Duvall, and mm-hmm. I was I was playing it today, and I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. Um, yeah, it was Robert Duvall, and then one of the categories <sighs> was um, let's see, it was Oscar Best Actor Lead or Supporting Nomination. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was nomination. So. And the Godfather and Godfather Part Two were my were two of the ones that I picked for Robert Duvall. And Apocalypse just Now, very recently watched and him. probably ten other of his movies. Yeah, you would destroy that game. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, I, I would. And it's called Critics' Choice Grid. Oh, nice. By the way, I would destroy that game. Yeah, um, Liza Minnelli won that year for Cabaret. So Cabaret won a shitload. Did of- this movie have any female nominations for actress or actor? Because they really don't focus on the female characters. I think Diane Keaton was nominated for two. Okay. For Godfather 2. I don't think she was. I think Talia Shire, who plays Connie, was nominated for two. I believe that's right. Um, and she, incidentally, is Coppola's sister. The actress who plays Connie. Man, he really likes casting his family. There's a lot of nepotism. Yeah. Um, but so, like Kay is like the most prominent woman in this movie, and she's nowhere to be seen. Like, she, she's not a prominent character at all. And so, Connie, Talia Shire, is also Nicolas Cage and Coppola, too. They are his aunt and uncle, mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage. So. Yeah, because Nick Cage changed his name. It was Coppola. And mm-hmm. he changed it to avoid nepotism, mm-hmm. or to avoid, like... The, yeah, the, the criticism the, that Coppola only casts his, right. his relatives. Which, is, which Nick Cage was never in any of those movies. No. I would argue that Nick Cage is more successful than Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, at post nineteen eighty for sure. In nineteen in the nineteen seventies, I would argue that Coppola was the most acclaimed filmmaker of that decade. I would agree, acclaimed, yes, acclaimed. I'm talking success. Well, it's like Nick Cage is successful because <laughs> Coppola. He has a movie that's meta about himself. He does. Coppola, so he won for Godfather one, yep. Godfather two. Yep. Uh, and then at, he was competing against himself in seventy four with a conversation. So he had two movies that he directed that were best picture against each other. He had two screenplays that were competing against each other, and he was competing against himself for best director, hmm. which is pretty impressive. That is impressive, yeah. And then after that, he did Apocalypse Now, and which physically and spiritually broke him, and he never really recovered from that. Yeah, that was a hard shoot. It, yes. Multi-years, uh, multiple heart attacks, including Coppola and Martin Sheen. Both had heart attacks when they came that movie. A lot of bacon on set. Multiple nervous breakdowns. So Jesus. Yeah. And Marlon Brando not not knowing any of his lines. So because again, he doesn't memorize lines. Nope, doesn't have to. So you got Robert Duvall. There's pictures out there, Robert Duvall and the Godfather wearing a <laughs> cumber like a cummerbund with lines of dialogue <laughs> written on them. You can Google it. Fucking incredible. And Brando is reading dialogue off of Robert Duvall. Brando reads the lines off the baby mm-hmm. in Superman. Yeah. There's uh, the freshman, the, the movie The Freshman he made with Matthew Broderick, he had an earpiece, and somebody was literally feeding him his lines through like a Secret Service type earpiece. You know? It's like, I mean, he's... I, I can't be mad because it's impressive, you know? Because nope. he, he pulls it off. I mean, you can, yeah, it's like the, the guy's reading these lines of dialogue. He won the Academy Award. You know, oh, can't fault him too much. It worked. Is that why he didn't accept it? Um, no, no, that was a joke. I know, I know why he didn't accept it. <laughs> but I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe that was the ulterior reason why. It's like you know, well, I was reading the dialogue off of a, of a cummerbund. I couldn't you know, make sense of all. How can I be a real actor if I'm not even a member of the line? Well, Robert Duvall has a long torso. The last thing we need is nothing but Marlon Brando impression. <laughs> Um, nothing but Marlon Brando impressions is a good name from for Godfather. It's ska band album. <laughs> nothing but Marlon Brando impressions. Uh, you know, this is a song by No Doubt. It's called "Don't Speak." <laughs> anyway, why is he a DJ? <laughs> He's like a radio DJ. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, this next one up here is uh, uh, the Mighty Mambo Number Five. Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. The impression that I get. <laughs> anyway, uh, this next one by Lou Bega. 
little bit of Tanisha on my mind. Speaking of Tanisha, can you hand me that uh, Toscana? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so. Um, what the fuck was I talking about? So, um, this was part of the, new, the movement in the 1970s called the New Hollywood Movement, which was a, a wave of young directors, more edgy directors, who reshaped the modern film industry into what it is now. Oh, wait, how old was Francis? He might have been 40, but not quite. Okay. Young. Was, that, was, that was young? Yeah. Okay. Um, other directors in this movement, who they were, all, they were all buddies to this day, and George Lucas, incidentally, directed the sequence of after Pacino kills the cop and the mob guy. They have the montage of the papers, newspaper headlines, yeah. and the guy playing the piano, and like all the bloodbath after that. George Lucas helped edit and put together that sequence for Coppola. Oh, interesting. Kind of take some of the workload off of him because they were, they were friends. Huh. So he did that for him. So, hmm. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, New Hollywood, where you had Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Arthur Penn, George Roy Hill, Brian De Palma. That was kind of your New Hollywood movement. Those are the guys who basically shaped. Which nowadays would be considered the old Hollywood movement. Yes. You know. Now, now they're, it's those those old are the school. established names. Yeah, but they're the reason why you have the movie industry, for better or worse, how it is now. They they remade it. Yeah. Um, the plot of the movie will seem familiar to people who haven't seen the movie. Um, it's set between four, 1945 and 1955. You follow two parallel stories: the gradual decline of a powerful mafia kingpin, Don Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, and the rise of his youngest and most ruthless and savage son, Michael, played by Al Pacino. Along the way, you meet men. I would say his most most ruthless and savage son is Sonny. Sonny's just more of a fighter and not a thinker. Sonny, to me, is his most temperamental and volatile, yeah, unstable son. Yeah, he's not he, he's not a strategist. He's no. a fighter. He he is a he is the most violent son. Yeah, Michael is the most Machiavellian and scheming and cold blooded, ruthless. Mm-hmm. To me, Sonny's not ruthless. You know, Sonny, Sonny's playing checkers. Yes, Sonny has a code Mike, of honor. Michael's playing chess. Sonny has a code of honor, and people know that. I think if he sees his, his sister beat up, he's going to go do something about it and yeah. beat the hell out of somebody. Yeah. You know, Michael. He's, he's predictable. He's easily played upon. And a perfect example is that Sonny does that. He beats up his, his brother-in-law, leaves him in the pool on the floor. You know, Michael knows that happens and knows what's going on and plays a long game. At the end of the movie, you know, talks his brother-in-law down. I'm not going to make Michael no, widow. I'm not going to make make a widow. And then you, I, I mean, respect him. family. After he stood in the baptism of their son, yeah, in church, and then murders him, it's like fucking sick. Michael is savage. Yeah. So I mean, such a great scene. Yeah. I mean, Michael is a sociopath. Yeah. Uh, Sonny, a lot of piano wire. Yeah. A lot of piano oh, yeah. wire around this movie. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the mafia trope started with this movie. Yeah. Like the fish and the male and all that kind of stuff. Swimming with the fishes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sonny's a good example of a psychopath. Michael's a good example of a sociopath. Yeah. You know, and yeah, like you said, good example of checkers and chess. So yeah, I guess. Yeah. In the sense, he is the most ruthless son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he also, he's the reluctant one. He's the one who do, doesn't want to be in the family. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to do the family business. Yep. Because I think that he probably fears who he is. And then he realizes that to me, the key scene in the movie is when he helps protect his father's hospital room with the, uh, the baker, mm-hmm. and they're outside, and the baker's shaking from head to toe after the bad guys leave. And Michael looks down at his hands, and they're like solid as a rock. It's like, I was, I was made for this. Yeah. This is who I'm supposed to be. Well, and they also build his character so well with him being back from the war. He's a war hero. You know, I think he was a Marine. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And, decorated yeah well and he he's been through the shit this doesn't phase him you know he's yeah. he's all he's doing is he's standing outside mm-hmm. guarding a door like no that's not gonna make him shake but like well baker boy mm-hmm. you're getting all shaky up in here i love i love the shot and i noticed that when we were watching them, my wife and i were watching the movie where he's talking to his dad and you know they're talking about how his dad had wished that he'd become governor corleone or like Senator Corleone, and Coppola frames a shot of Coppola or of 
the Godfather looking backwards and Michael looking forwards, and they're looking in the exact opposite directions in life. And it's, it's such a visual, such a perfect visual shot of where they are in life and, and what their ambitions are for each other. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's set up so well for Michael and like he realizes that he can't be that person. Well, and they, they just do such a good job of framing it to where the Godfather, Marlon Brando, is always looking, or he, you know, he's at a point in his life where he's reflecting, right? Mm-hmm. He's looking back at, like, how I got here. Yeah. And Michael's looking forward in terms of, like, how do I move forward? What do I do next? Yeah. What's my next step? Yeah. You know? Um, and to me, this is a great example of how, and Travis and I always talk about this, of how great writers show, bad writers tell. Right. And it's like, you know, how they show the opening se- sequence of the movie is a masterpiece of, like, good storytelling. How they don't tell The you. wedding scene. Yeah. It's so good. It opens on The Undertaker. The opening shot is him saying, I believe in America, and petitioning the Godfather to, first, first off, kill the people who rub up his daughter. Not kill, but you know, yeah, he wants justice to be done. And but you learn everything you need to know about the Godfather in that scene without them actually telling you anything, right? Or it's like the first time you see Sonny when he's out there confronting the paparazzi and the FBI guys in the and and out there in the parking area, like yeah. the street, taking pictures of license plates and like you know writing down, smashing notes. the camera. Yeah, it's like he barely says anything, but it's like you see exactly who Sonny is. Yeah, visually, it's like. Coppola tells you who he is rather than like explains modern like weak directors and writers will explain well, in that scene he 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 roughs up a, a cameraman can, like assaults the FBI and then goes and like cheats on his wife spits on the ground yep you know and then throws down a couple of dollars on the ground it's like goddamn FBI and how much does the camera cost ten dollars Michael and he doesn't even ask it's like he doesn't he, he literally takes some money on, out Just of his did. wallet. It, 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 doesn't hand it to the guy. He yeah. throws it on the ground in front of him. Yep. And it's like that's Coppola is like literally doing such a good job of telling you everything about Sonny with everything he does. It's like there's not a wasted gesture in there. And then he comes inside and it's like, you know what? I'm gonna fuck a bridesmaid. My wife is right there. Yeah, fuck it. You know? It's like Sonny doesn't give a fuck. He's a philanderer. Yeah. But then it's like there's great moments where it's like they eventually get Sonny gets into the meeting with uh Johnny Fontaine, the singer, yeah, who's Frank Sinatra, supposed to be Frank Sinatra, right? And you know, Don Corleone turns back to Sonny coming in. He knows he's been fucking around with his wife. He turns back to Johnny Fontaine. He's like, "You spend time with your kids?" And Johnny Fontaine's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Good." Any man that doesn't spend time with his family is not a real man. It's like just little moments like that where it's like he's he. It's like John, the, the 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 biting words, yeah, yeah. He he's insulting his son. He's yeah. like, "I know you're fucking around." But yeah, supposedly. Uh, well, because Robert Duvall comes looking for him. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Hey, Sonny, you in there?" Yeah. Oh, and he's having, oh, yeah, oh. he's having a little tryst. Sonny. Supposedly, oh. Johnny Fontaine's Frank Sinatra, because Frank Sinatra had a similar deal where he couldn't get out of the contract, and I forget who the real life mobster was who stepped in and put a gun to the guy's head and says, "You either sign it, or I'm going to put your brains all over the contract." Wait, wait. one of two things is going to be on the. On this contract, either mm-hmm. your brains or your signature. Mm-hmm. He signed it. Yeah. And so that's where that story comes from. It was like, you know, $10,000 to let him out of the contract. It's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then supposedly. Well, and, then, and then later putting him in the position where he has to come and perform like one show a year, one show a month. What was it? Yes, yeah. In, in like Vegas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He has to have like a, a short residence. And it's like basically, and they show that through the first, through both movies where it's like, we own you. Yeah. You know? Once you do something, we own, like the Undertaker, you know, we'll help you out, but someday you have to do something for me. You know, think it's for my father. You know, he would really appreciate it if you would sign this contract. You can't say no. Yeah. Yeah. You don't dare say no. After but, everything he did for you, why would you? Yeah. I mean, it, it, but it's like the, the famous, you know, the producer, the legendary scene where the guy wakes Nathan up. Nathan Lane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the producer who wakes up with a horse's head. Yeah. That's a real horse's head. In the movie? Mm-hmm. That's a real horse's head? It's a real horse's head. Shit. That was and, a pretty horse. And so the guy's screams were real. Really? Mm-hmm. He didn't know? He didn't know it was going to be an actual horse's head. Shit. So, 
thought it was a really good prop. Yep. No, no those are real where, terrifying. Where do you source a horse's head? Supposedly they found it at like a dog food type place where they were making the dog food that out of That seems suspicious. But they found... The fucking glue factory? Yeah. They found the actual horse's head. <laughs> and they put it in the bed with the guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there, were, there was a set designer who was like, uh, you know what? I know a guy. Yeah. I can get you a horse's head. Yeah. What, you want a horse's head? I can get you a horse's head. Let's go down to Elmer's. <laughs> Real glue guy, you know? So anyway. Really keeps, <laughs> keeps the locker room together. Um, so, all-star cast. You got Ke- Diane Keaton, who plays Kay. And to me, yeah, she doesn't have a huge part, but she is the symbol of, like, Michael's goodness, his decency. Yeah. She, like, everybody wants him to be the hope of the family. Nobody wants him to go down the path of being... He, he was the college boy. He was supposed to be the one that was supposed to get out. Rise above it. Yeah. And so if she is a symbol of that, then, I mean, think about the final shot of the movie where, you know, he is... Don't ask me about the family business. And she's standing outside the room as Michael's, like, subordinates shut the door on her face. Yeah. It's like any chance of Michael being a good human is dead. And the good person he was. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like the Darth Vader thing where it's like, you know, when he, you know, know, Obi-Wan Kenobi's explaining, like, you know, the good man who was your father is dead. You know, he's been replaced by a machine. Yeah. That, to me, is Michael Corleone. It's like, you know, he was a good person, but that person is dead. Well, and then they do such a good job of telling that story further in part two. Mm-hmm. Part two is so much more about, like, his descent into evil. Yeah. You know, part one is really about, like, him taking it over at a point of necessity. Mm-hmm. Like, he has to take it over because no one else will. It's like he's reluctant to do it. But he'll do it because he, you know, has the duty to his family. Yeah. Part two is really about like, man, he just like doesn't want to be good anymore. It's his spiritual fall. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. And, and then we don't talk about part three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that doesn't exist as a movie. Yeah. Which is too bad. I had so much hope for that one. Um. Yeah, you have Robert Duvall's Tom Hagen, who's the adopted son and conciliary, the advisor. Yep, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. You had John Cazal, who's Fredo, who's like the bumbling, bumbling idiot son. I love Fredo. Fredo's so fun. He's and, just drunk. He's just having a party. <laughs> and, He's a little party of one. Yeah. Um, and again, it does, Coppola does a great job of introducing him at the wedding when he comes up to you know, Diane Keaton. Yeah, this is the silly goose of the family. Yeah, he's like just drunk and stupid. And, yeah. You know, kind of awkwardly hitting on her. And John Cazal probably, like he only made, only acted in five movies. All five, because he died of uh, brain cancer in 1978. Not long after this came out. Acted in five movies. All five either won or were nominated for Best Picture. He was in... That's a great... Great run, great percentage. He was in Godfather, Godfather Two, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Godfather One and Two both won Best Picture, and then so did The Deer Hunter. Yeah, oh, it's a great track record. And yeah, so basically, he dated Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep was also in The Deer Hunter. One of her functions in The Deer Hunter was to keep him functioning because he had brain cancer. So they had to like keep him alive through that film. That's that's a rough job. That's crazy. Yeah. Yikes. Supposedly he was in love of her life. She was in love with Fredo. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. It is. It's crazy. It's really tragic. Um, but he was Fredo and did a great job as Fredo. Yeah. Just spot on. Big old head. Mm-hmm. Slick back of hair. Just yeah. Yeah. And just the doofus brother. That's a band name. <laughs> the doofus brothers? I could be in that band. Um so You've obviously seen this movie before. I have, yes. What would you give it? 10. Yeah. It's a 10. This is I a mean, non-debatable. Easiest 10 I've ever given a movie. Yeah. I, it's got all the hallmarks of a 10. Great storytelling, great cinematography, emotional range. You have character growth. You have just like all the... The music is so iconic. I mean, this is a movie that goes down as like one of the movies where you look back and you say, okay, if I have to watch... Five movies in my entire life, and that's it. 
Like, mm-hmm. what, what, what do I start with? Godfather. You start with Godfather. Yeah. It, it started and ended the sort of mobster, uh, you know, trope. Yeah. It, mobster movies were a thing. They were really big in, like, the, you know, 50s through the 70s. 30s. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a thing all around. Like, it was mm-hmm. just the great stories to tell as organized crime. This was the iconic movie. Mm-hmm. It, it, it capped it so perfectly that it captured just this time period between when organized crime was at its peak with like Al Capone to like transitioning into what it became in the, the later forties, fifties, you know, into the Goodfellas time period. Yeah. The Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. When when we see the Goodfellas that like, that's the next sort of era, the Sopranos era Mm -hmm. of drugs and debauchery. Yeah. Yeah. I, this movie is just, it, it has to be on anybody's Mount Rushmore of movies. Mm-hmm. I don't see how anybody sees this and doesn't think it's a 10. It's iconic. Yeah. 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 I mean, to, to me, it's like, same deal where it's like, to me, I put the Mount Rushmore movies like, you see Dorothy, Wizard of Oz. You know the movie. You Who? know the story. You know, I mean. Yeah. Tin Man. You see. Lion. Snow White. You know the movie. Yeah. You know exactly what's going on. It's like this. You see The Godfather. You know the movie. That's Honestly, that's why I would say The Godfather is the lead actor, Marlon Brando. It's like you show a picture of him in this movie, you know the movie. Um, is there one scene that you think of with Marlon Brando that like sticks out as like, this is the scene? Or like when you think of The Godfather, like what's the first scene that comes to mind? The opening scene. Really? Yeah. I think, oh. To me, weirdly, it's the one with him with the orange in his mouth. With in, the, in the garden, like the one where he dies. With his grandson. Yeah. Yeah. The scene where he dies. And there's spoilers. not a wrong answer, but yeah. But like, that's the one I think of is like him with like, he's, you know, just, he's become like a shadow of who he once was, but he's just. Elderly. He's wanting to spend time with the kids, you mm-hmm. know, just like, you know, hang yeah. out with his grandkids and water his tomatoes. I mean, yeah, it, it's his prophecy of like, you know, a man that doesn't spend time with his family is not a real man. Yeah. You know, he, he backs up his own dialogue. Yeah, but I also think about like him uh, going into the, the morgue after Sonny. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, look what they did to my boy. My boy. Look you know, what they did to my boy. Everybody imitates that scene, yeah. you know. Like, what are they messing well, with and, my boy? Yeah, it would be the, the scene that becomes a meme, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a wrong answer. I mean, yeah. all of his scenes are just legendary. You come to me on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. One thing I pointed out to my wife, I don't know if you caught it, but in all three Godfather movies, Oranges are a harbinger of bad news. Hmm. Next time you watch it, look for that. Whenever the first time he is, like they try to assassinate him. Yeah. He is trying, the oranges spill out all around him. Whenever he's holding a meeting with five families, you know, it's like, I I swear off vengeance on my son. Oranges are on the table. Whenever he dies. Interesting. In the end. Oranges are bad. Mm -hmm. And then watch the second one. Oranges are everywhere. I'm trying to remember where they have oranges in the second one. At the end of it, whenever they're talking about going to kill Hyman Roth. Yeah. And Michael decides to kill Fredo. Which, let's talk about the second one real quick. Because we both just happened to watch the second one also very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Who was just his bodyguard? Just came out of nowhere? Just was like a character that just was? Somebody he hired. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Somebody frightening. Looked good on film. Looked good on film. Wore black. Mm-hmm. Creepy hat. Mm-hmm. Big giant hulking guy. Yeah, big big old dude. Mm-hmm. No Luca Brasi, but you know. No. Second string Luca. Yeah. So what would you give the second film? Um, I would give the second film an eight and a half. You know? It was good. It it, it tried too much to reclaim what it could out of the first. And it's, it's interesting because some people will debate that the second film is better than the first. Really? Mm-hmm. I feel like it tried to do too much with the both storylines at the same time. And what, what did you think? I would be interested, I mean, on that subject to see there's an edit that I want to say Coppola did where he straightened out both movies and presented them as a miniseries on TV in chronological order mm-hmm. where you could watch De Niro play Don Vito and then watch the first movie and then watch it, Michael, in the second movie, all in order. I'd be interested to see that. Um, first two movies, to me, are tens, both of them. Yeah. 
to me, there are two halves, especially because they were co-written by the author of the books. It's like one big, long novel. I, I just like the first one better. Different feel, for sure. Different feel. It's more cohesive. It just feels more um, like the story is a little bit more streamlined. It's like Kill Bill 1 and 2. Are they two different movies, or are they two halves of one movie? To me, it's two different movies. For Kill Bill. Oh, for Kill Bill, it's, that's, that's two parts of one movie. Godfather Godfather two. feels like two different movies. Yeah. To me. Yeah. I loved the ending of Godfather 2 with him alone outside, sitting outside of his house. Um, they flash back to, to his family before the war, before the first movie. And, and know, he's, he's having dinner with his family, telling him that he joined the, yeah. the Marines. And it's like, it's kind of like watching the flashbacks in Breaking Bad later, where it's like, you look at scenes where it's like Walter White killed everybody in the scene. And it's like you look at like the, that scene, it's like how many people in this scene did, did Michael kill? Yeah. His brother-in-law, yeah. Abe Vigoda, you know, his brother. It's like probably half the people in that scene are dead because of him. Yeah. And that's his family. And that's the people like he wants to like protect and claims to stand behind. He murdered at least half of them. So it's It's the hearkening back to the good old days, like looking back at like, how far you've come to become this isolated man who's just on a in a chair at like Tahoe alone. You know? Yeah. And it's like with no one else around, including his wife. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's interesting because like the last time we see Diane Keaton in both movies, it's a door getting shut in her face. She had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know. For being the only decent person in Yeah, the how dare she? Yeah. She knew what she was getting into. Don't give me that. She's the only good person. She's naive. She she knew. She was willfully ignorant. I mean, she yes, she terminally naive. Yeah, yeah. What was she from? Connecticut? Somewhere. New Hampshire? Something like that? Yeah. Same, something same, dumb. Same difference. Something dumb. <laughs> to me, the first two movies. She's living in Jersey. We know what she does. Yeah, you got it coming. Yeah. One and two returns. To me, part three is about six. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I haven't seen part three in a long time. It's been a while. Yeah, it is what it is. I'm not going to actively go back and watch part three. Yeah, forget about it. <laughs> I watched the trailer for part three, and I was like, yeah, I don't miss that. Yeah. Well, the weakest thing about it is Sofia Coppola as the daughter. Huh. Yeah, she's not an actress. Well, you know. To me, like people like Al Pacino. And she Di- was great in the first movie. Yeah, <laughs> getting baptized. Actually. Nailed her lines, mm-hmm. you know. She screamed to perfection. Yeah, to is believable. Mm-hmm. She got baptized really well. Yeah, as did we all. But I mean, let's just say that that last scene, the scene of him taking the communion and doing the whole like Godfather speech, mm-hmm. not speech, but like you know, renouncing the devil, yada yada yada, yeah. while they like kill all of his enemies at the same time. While he is the devil, that scene. Is so perfect. Yeah. Start to finish. That scene is so good. Mm-hmm. Just like it's it's everything. Yeah. It's that's the movie of like this is a ten. It's a hard ten. Mm-hmm. There's no debating this. This is like one of the best movies ever. Yeah. Right. What's well, like he's you know standing Godfather to a kid who he's about to kill this kid's dad mm-hmm. that day, and he's pronouncing himself as a protector and a good person. While he's murdering people at that same time. Yeah, well, he's he's not going to follow the devil. He the, renounces him. Yeah. He renounced it. It's, it's like, right there. He is the devil. It's renounced. It's like Breaking Bad. It's like he is the one who knocks. I am the one who knocks. He is the danger. That's right. You know, I mean, it's like he is doom. So, it's like, you you know, it's like the beginning of the movie. It, again, this is why it's a great movie. It's like you see him. He's a college kid, bright-eyed, and... and Bushy-tailed? Yeah, a good-natured human being. And at the end of it, he is just a bastard. So, what makes that a great movie? It's watching that evolution. Yeah. And then watching it even more in the second film. You get to see how much further he falls. Yeah. Well, and it's just, it's so well-written that you see him become this bastard out of necessity. Like, Mm -hmm. him having to do all this stuff out of, like, I have to protect my family, I have to protect my, you know... My dad. Yeah. Second one, it's just greed. Yeah. You know, it's it's seeing it seep in and seeing it like continue to rot away at him. Yeah, it's know? like you're you're seeing 
somebody who's turned the dark side. Yeah. Closing shot of the film is him, where it's like you know he's turned. The second film is all him as a Sith Lord. Yeah. You know, Don. Just being a badass. Darth Michael. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the, the clear differences between him and his dad, who is still has a code, still has a sense of honor. Well, like he did some shit, you know. Yeah. He's more of a charismatic villain. Yeah, he to... he got to live through the glory days of being a, a mob boss. Mm-hmm. He didn't get to you know have to he had to deal with the FBI, but he didn't have to like deal with the FBI. You know, no, he just had to mop up and just be a badass. Yep. So and then Michael had to be psycho. Yeah, savage. So anyway, um, one of our longer episodes, but still worth it. It, I mean, how can you not? It's Godfather. Yeah, it's what we always hold as like the the standard of everybody agrees it's a ten. Mm-hmm. How do you get there? I mean, I think if we had the four of us, this would be a two hour episode easily. Lots to talk about. Um, but Cantalatore, Cantalatoro, Avenue, <laughs> Cantaloro, Cantaloro. Forgive me again. We are three episodes this deep. This is this is bottle number three. Having, having. <laughs> Jame Duty Dench. Jame Duty Dench. Avenue Nancy, Toscana, 2019. Good stuff. Um, I'll post links. And yeah, great movies. Only Drunker, Sean Jordan. Howdy. My name's Todd Wofford. Been another episode of Cinema Vino. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. We're back in the swing of things. You're going to get stuff from us weekly. Yeah, we're back to all new stuff. So enjoy. And it's good to have you guys with us along the way. So we'll see you guys next time.